Two, three. Welcome, guys. This is podcast number one for Ops Medical Group with four critical care clinicians, John, Craig, Wendy, and Mandy. And uh, we're excited to get here. We're a little bit nervous because we don't know what we're doing, but we're going to figure it out. And it's going to evolve over the next months and years to come. Our hope ultimately is to be able to provide an, uh, an objective insight uh, into our experiences as healthcare clinicians, uh, our challenges, our successes, our struggles, our happy times, our sad times, um, provide an opportunity to hopefully educate uh, people who are both in the healthcare profession as well as people who are uh, consumers of healthcare, which is pretty much everybody. Um, and we're hoping to do this in a very genuine fashion. Uh, some of these conversations will be very difficult. Uh, some of the conversations will probably be uncomfortable. Um, but at the same time, we, we want that because we want people to recognize that there are challenges that we face all day, every day. Um, and a lot of the challenges that we face in the healthcare community have parallels to the lay community. And it's equally important for you to recognize those. Um, my background is I'm board certified uh, in emergency medicine. Uh, and have been practicing in uh, Texas and have uh, some great partners here that have shared their um, experiences with me as well. Um, and I'm gonna let each of them introduce themselves. Um, so I'm gonna let Craig introduce himself. I'm Craig. Um, I have been practicing in the state of Texas for quite a long time now. I've been an RN for over 20 years and uh, I've been practicing emergency medicine for the last 10. I'm in the military and have done the entire military gig for about the last 23 years. I guess I will pass it over to whoever. Hi, I'm Mandy. Um, I am a acute care nurse practitioner. I've been in the medical field for about 15 years now. My background is emergency medicine and trauma. I um, now do um, nocturnist slash hospitalist work uh, at a local facility. Okay, last but not least, I am Wendy. I am a family nurse practitioner with a postmasters in emergency and trauma medicine um, for, from UT, the Longhorns. And I have been um, in healthcare for over a decade, practicing in both rural Texas and now in the big city. <laughs> and we are here to hopefully start something great. And in addition to hoping, hopefully providing an educational platform, our goal for our company is much broader than that. We are looking to uh, provide consulting services for hospitals, uh, paramilitary units, uh, as well as the firefighters, EMS teams, even the police, um, because so much of what we do is applicable to the first responders. And we feel like that we can provide some insight and some really valuable training services, whether it's in uh, simulation experiences uh, or just some classical uh, education modules. We're also hoping to, to branch out and have some basic first aid uh, that we can share with the general population. Uh, you know, what do you do when your best friend starts choking at a restaurant? 
those are kind of things that we do want to address uh, in addition to some of the, the crazy stuff that we see in the ER or in the ICU or in, in the hospital in and of itself. There's a component of this. I think that we kind of want to pull the curtain back and let everyone take a look and see what the wizard really looks like um, because it's not always as impressive as it seems and we want to be very candid about that. Uh, it's not to say that it's all doom and gloom, um, but it's certainly not all uh, roses and smiles either. And we need to be able to take the good with the bad uh, and share our successes and our failures and hopefully that you can learn from both of them. Um, in addition to that, uh, we have explored uh, some staffing opportunities and we're building our company to provide staffing services to hospitals uh, both locally and across the nation. And we're actively working on that right now. Uh, so we're excited about that component. There also uh, have been opportunities that we've explored doing uh, international work with non-governmental organizations that are needing healthcare consulting companies like ours and we've uh, delved into that and I know Craig has been in conversation with uh, some individuals who are helping put us uh, in those circles. Uh, COVID has certainly thrown the brakes on that unfortunately but uh, we're certainly keeping that in mind and a lot of what we're doing may evolve. Uh, I fully well anticipate that it will evolve as we grow uh, and kind of see what's working and where we need to adapt. So um, my guess is in six months, things may look drastically different and we're excited about that too. And I think this is a decent segue to what we wanted to talk about for today in terms of successes and failures. And we wanted to talk about bounce backs. Um, all four of us uh, have at one point worked in an acute care setting, whether it's an ER or an urgent care. Uh, and I've seen a patient that uh, what, what bounce back and what we mean by that is you see a patient and you discharge the patient and they come back the next day or the day after that or sometime within a 72 hour period they return to the hospital to be seen again um, and it is something that we are all too frequent with uh, with knowing about uh, and there are challenges with those patients and we want to talk to you about those patients um, and how to uh, address those patients sort of some red flags that you want to look for, uh, and also just some, some inherent challenges in evaluating those patients, but also the, the overall situation of bounce backs. Um, any of you have any cases off the top of your head that you want to talk about? And of course, we'll talk about these very objectively. Anything come to mind? Yeah, so I could tell you right now, I've had several that I've seen that my own personal bounce backs, uh, but I've had patients that have been seen by other clinicians. Uh, I remember one guy coming in complaining. He had probably been to the doctor about four or five times complaining of back pain and leg pain. And this is one of those that is not the normal bounce back. So that's already kind of alarming, back pain and yeah. leg pain. Yeah, so. Multiple times. Yeah, so he, he, he went to the urgent care, he went to the emergency room, he went to his primary care doctor, like I end up seeing him and he's like and he's from Russia to top it all off and he's like dude I've been having pain in my leg and in my back and it's been going on for like the last four weeks I've been to this I've been to that everybody writes me for the same thing and I go home and my pain is not getting better and I'm telling you right now I can pinpoint it now that I've been on pain medicine and my pain is right here and he points to his thigh I'm like okay so it's not your back. He goes, no, it's not my back. And 
just to be on the safe side, I, I went ahead and I shot an x-ray of not only his femur, but I shot an L-spine. Anyway, he ended up having uh, osteosarcoma. And so that was one of those cases where I sit back and I'm just like, fuck, dude, like, you've you've got cancer. And so for a lot of folks that don't get it, um, I I personally find it extremely painful to tell a patient that they have cancer. It sucks. Yeah, and so, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, having to tell him and he's like, I... I mean, there was, and he's Russian, so like his, his entire thing is like, I'm so fucking glad I'm here. I'm glad somebody saw me. I'm glad somebody figured it out. And I'm thinking, I was like, dude, I just told you you have cancer. And aggressive cancer. Yeah, and it, yeah, and it's in your leg, and you're probably gonna lose your leg. You'd be surprised, though. I think a lot of people want an answer, whether it's good or bad. I think the thought of being in limbo and not knowing makes people more nervous and afraid mm-hmm. than an actual diagnosis, if that makes any sense. And there are two things that I want to comment on that that I don't know that the general population knows. I'm not even sure that other uh, clinicians who don't work in acute care setting, settings uh, fully understand. And the first is that this patient doesn't know us from Adam. Mm-hmm. And we're telling these people for the f- that we've met sometimes for the first time Hey, you have cancer. Within the first hour. We think you have cancer. So we don't have a relationship with these people like a primary physician or other physicians have the luxury of seeing these patients over the course of months and years. And the first time that we get to see them, we're telling them something horrific. Your loved one died. You have cancer. You had a heart attack. You had a stroke. And that's super, super challenging. No, by the way, cancer is not an emergent thing. So by... Yeah. That's the other hard part. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're absolutely correct. I mean, you're sitting there and it's like, okay, well, I'm going to consult oncology and you're going to see this guy outpatient. And they're like, okay. Okay. With this life-altering diagnosis. Yeah. But it's not considered an emergency. Yeah, and it's not an admittable thing, you yeah. know, unless there's something that is on top of it, which there wasn't. Yeah, I, I think for me as the hospitalist, that's the hardest part if um, something can be found that I can admit someone on that has like a new diagnosis of cancer, great. But if it's kind of one of those soft calls or they can just follow up at home, it makes it a lot harder just because of the whole admittable diagnosis thing. Mm -hmm. And I think the lay public doesn't really understand that just because you're diagnosed with cancer in the ER doesn't mean you get to spend the night and treatment starts right there and then. Are you going to tell Yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah, and you know, for any of you out there who have been through cancer or have loved ones who have, uh, it's, a, it's a long, painful, difficult road. Um, sometimes it ends great and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and unfortunately for, for those of us in the acute care setting, um, oftentimes we're dealing with the consequences of the treatment more than the actual cancer itself which makes it that much more challenging because we're really trying to support what is being done by the oncologist because it's kind of the, the best fighting chance the patient has, but oftentimes it makes them sick and they feel terrible and it, the medication is actually, and some people harder than the disease itself. So um, it's just really hard when we're meeting these people for the first time and we don't have a relationship mm-hmm. and we have minutes to develop a rapport with a patient who 
you know, in, in this case, was super thankful that he had a, a, an answer. And I think that's, the, I guess, the second thing that I wanted to bring up in terms of providing an answer. And this is also challenging for us in the acute setting is that sometimes, yes, we do have an answer for you. You have a pneumonia. You have a urinary tract infection. Heaven forbid you have a cancer. But sometimes our answer is you don't have a heart attack. You don't have a pneumonia. You don't have cancer. And that's a good fucking answer. And yet, patients still sometimes get mad. They say, well, why am, I, why am I hurting? Well, you know, I'm not sure. And that's where it's important for you to follow up. And we try to share with these patients the importance of following up. Yeah. And, you know, all, all four of us have worked at one time or another in a hospital that has uh, patients that have difficulty getting access to healthcare. So they default to the emergency department. And that's just the nature of the beast. Um, but there was something that I, so one of the, when I was in residency, one of the books that was recommended, recommended to me by one of my favorite attendings, super smart guy, uh, but on top of being incredibly intelligent, he was incredibly real world. He knew, he was very practical, uh, but he recommended this book for me when I was, I guess I was a second year resident. I think I finished my intern year. It's called Bounce Backs, Emergency Department Cases. It's by a guy named Michael Weidenstock. Uh, and commented on by this guy named uh, Gregory Henry. They're both emergency physicians. They practice in university settings. But um, th there was something really interesting that they wrote in here that I was going to comment on if I can find it, um, which is this, and I quote, The emergency physician functions while suffering insults from intoxicated patients, while trying to solve, parentheses, unsolvable, in parentheses, social problems, and within the framework of a plethora of paperwork and healthcare regulations. Picking apart a perplexing case is rarely a problem when patients present one at a time, as during grand rounds, but this is infrequent in real life, end quote. And that's our daily activity. It is just a clusterfuck of information just swarming us. Whether it's EKGs being thrown in our face or, yeah. hey, doc, did you see this lab? Hey, doc, did you see this? You know, you're trying to do your note on, a, on one patient and they're asking a question on another patient and a nurse needs an order for a different patient. And it's just one of those things. And you try to have checks and balances and you try to have checklists and things in place where, you know, mistakes aren't going to happen. But we're all humans and mistakes are going to happen. And what's so frustrating is I've never talked to anyone who doesn't say, oh, yeah, we know a mistake's going to happen. And yet we got a book dedicated to bounce backs and what I thought was fascinating is they pointed out all these different statistics for the percentage of people that are going to likely bounce back and the percentage of those people that are actually because of medical error uh, the in by the way the sample size is really low so I'm not terribly impressed with that there's also a lot of assumptions that are made uh, that I don't think hold uh, just from a statistically significant standpoint however let's assume that they do I thought that it was pretty fascinating and this is interesting too from the book. It talks about if you work 30 hours a week and you see three patients an hour, which is a lot of patients for those of you who don't know. Three patients an hour is, 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 is moving. So you'd see 4,500 patients a year. If you work for uh, the 30 year career span, you're gonna see uh, what they say a total of 135,000 patients in the course of that career. So they speculate that you will send 17 patients home who will die within seven days of ED discharge. Anybody want to take a guess at what that percentage is? 17 out of 135,000? It is percentage 
0.012% of the time, someone's going to be sent home and die. Now, unless you are 100% in everything that you do, you're going to send somebody home and die. And that According to what this That is unbelievably like, un unrealistic. Didn't pick up my meds, didn't follow oh, up. We haven't even gotten didn't to that. come back because I yeah. had all these cardinal signs and yeah. symptoms I was warned about. They just go home and... But the expectation on us as providers is ludicrous. Like, we're not perfect. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to be perfect to get into medical school. Yeah, you have to have mostly A's, but an A is 90% and above in a lot of places. Not 99.7% and above. Yeah. But I think... <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. We're all human. And that is a perfect segue into my actual bounce back story is the realistic, we are all human and we are set in sometimes impossible situations. So um, I was working, filling relief shifts in a rural ER in the middle of nowhere, Texas, <laughs> um, because I won't give names. This is um, good. Yes. And the administration had set up to where you had one MP or PA and one physician coverage. Um, the, that's it. it. And they decided that it would be a good idea for the MP and PA to only be in triage and only greet patients, which works great if your census is really low and not highly acute, uh, not the case in this ER. Very cute setting because it's the middle of nowhere and nobody has access to anything. And also, night, some nights are just busy, you know. It's gonna be one of those things yeah. that you're gonna fail with this setup, but nobody- Is this the only hospital kind of in the region? Yes, yes, so within an hour and a half like area. Yeah. Yes, it's like a setup for catastrophe, but this is also, like, administration will just not listen. So you're going to have to fail first for somebody to take notice, okay? And so I have a bounce back of a teenage girl with abdominal pain. And she was seen the night before, had come in with a couple episodes of nausea, vomiting, a couple episodes of diarrhea. And the triage NP had discharged her out of the waiting room after a negative KUB and some basic lab work. The key here is, is she said that every time she moved her leg, her stomach hurt worse. So when I see her again, she now has this big distended abdomen and febrile and septic, huge change, less than 24 hours later because now her appendix has perforated and that was missed based on the setup. And so not only does she have to now travel two hours away to a facility with surgical capabilities by helicopter and everything else, she, I'm, I'm hoping she had a good outcome, but you just never know. That's the problem with ER medicine. But this was probably my biggest lesson with bounce backs, especially as a clinician who had only been practicing at that point at two years, is that you cannot allow administration to make or break your treatment and that was the pressure with the initial clinician is that she was in triage and she was swamped and she had to hurry up and see all these other patients and this girl looked good then i'm gonna get her out and get her home but the warning flag the red flag was the my 
stomach hurts worse when I like raise my leg a certain way. Yeah. And she missed that because she was in a hurry. Yeah. And that was not her. Was she new? Yes. She was also a newer clinician. So I I personally think um, whenever administrative rules are placed on quotas for moving the flow of Mm -hmm. patients, it's easier to intimidate the, the newer folks. To fall in line with like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, you have to do this workup and this workup, you know, and do it quick. And I've even had, um, you know, medical directors and nursing directors who are like, yeah, we don't have to work all that up. And I'm like, yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. If you want to discharge them, you're more than welcome to discharge them. But this is my patient at this point. Uh, and, and, and it's, that's a really tough position. And you've got to have like a really stern backbone, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Because you're going to own it in the long run. Uh, and it's, that's tough, man. That's, and it's just, and for me, who has practiced rural medicine, and I can tell you right now, like, those are just tough situations to be stuck in. They are. And if you're new to practicing medicine in any capacity uh, and listening to us right now, actually, if you're listening to us at all, thank you. We're so grateful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you're, if you're new, um, we do want to encourage you keep reading keep learning but i would really encourage you try to find a mentor someone you can reach out to because it is going to be challenging and a lot of these you know comments that you'll hear experienced clinicians talk about this gestalt this this decision made on a gut because of experience that they have you only get that by getting experience and so you're not going to have that coming out of the gates mm-hmm. read as much as you can try to learn from other people's mistakes and lean on those mentors because it, it is going to be challenging um, and, and the other thing I was going to say is thank God that this individual patient came back to the emergency department mm-hmm. you know we don't want to complain about patients coming back because that's one of the things we tell them if things change or get worse come back to see us yeah. because the human body rarely follows the textbook mm-hmm. and we try to tell patients that all the time look this could change here's what we want you to look out for and so you know if a patient comes back I'm thankful because it gives us the opportunity to say hey look what did we miss let's dig a little deeper so I'm thankful that this patient came back um, I think that that's that's huge you know the other thing I was gonna say is that the the book that I referenced a little while ago it's from the, the edition was from 2006 so there may be new editions out uh, I did want to throw that out there um, for anybody that was interested, there, there may be new additions to this uh, E uh, Bounce Backs book. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you're a new clinician, um, keep reading, keep working hard, uh, and and I would encourage you probably overwork things. I mean, you're going to develop that experience, um, and yeah, you may get some pressure for over, overworking things, but you're going to be able to sleep at night. And if you know that you did everything right, then. There's still going to be bad outcomes, and you know you did the best you could do, and also, that's all you can do. I also, this, and this is just my personal opinion, there, there are like three different types of practitioners, you know, of medicine, right? There's the one that orders everything, mm-hmm. there's the one that is in the middle, and then there's the one that is the minimalist, right? Mm-hmm. And so I remember leaving critical care and coming into EM. And my biggest challenge was, oh, they're not really sick. 
making the decision whether they're <laughs> not really sick or because yeah. you see, you're seeing yeah. them in the emergency room and it's can like can they stay or can they go yeah and so yeah. in that case like you see that patient and you're like oh fuck you're sick yeah <laughs> and so it's a no-brainer it's like oh that's a full workup yeah versus hey you see somebody and it's like oh well they're not really sick you know and so let me just do this basic workup and you know if you're going from one environment to another and you you don't see it but at the same time if you're new and you're not seeing it that's that's a lot different because now you're you're dealing with oh i people are expecting me to do this workup but oh i really don't have to do a workup because guess what they're not really that sick and this is the presentation that i have and oh i can go ahead and discharge them and then oh next thing you know they rupture your neck yeah and that's like when i have med students rotating with me and i have a sick patient I make them all go see the patient. I was like, sear this into your brain. This is what sick looks like. Yeah. Because when we make the comment, sick, not sick, mm-hmm. it's a completely different definition of what we mean because you can be sick with a urinary tract infection or the flu and go home. That's not sick to us. Yeah. And so our definition is, is definitely skewed. Um, I think the best piece of advice I honestly <clears throat> ever got about bounce bats was from probably one of the smartest physicians I ever worked with, but also one of the meanest physicians <laughs> I've ever worked with. Like, took pride in making people cry. Like, old school guy, yeah. which, you know, that's not really fostered that much anymore, that attitude. But truly, probably one of the best physicians just experience and education. But some of those people you learn the most from. You, I know I have. That's true. That's true. But he literally said that bounce backs scare him the most and if he sees somebody again that he has previously sent home he almost always has somebody else look at them almost always so that there's a fresh set of eyes they're not biased and you get another experienced clinician's opinion because we do only see them once or twice, and you're having to make this medical decision so quickly in such a pressured environment, and you don't want to be wrong. You don't want that person to be your 0.12 percent mm-hmm. because they're still people to us. So I think that's, that's always stuck with me. Well, and that also segues into another goal that I hope that we can achieve, not only with this podcast, but with the consulting work that we do, and that's dealing with dickhead doctors <laughs> because it's a real thing and you've got to learn how to deal with the, the dickheads and communicate with them you've also got to learn how to lead them and not get butt hurt and be emotionally balanced with it but also if you're listening to this I hope it's influencing you to develop a sense of patience and a leadership style that is encouraging although holding people accountable but not being a dick because there's a way to correct a mistake that communicates the education you need without making the person feel like a bad human being. Yeah. Cause I've seen it done both ways mm-hmm. and there's absolutely no reason to make someone feel like a bad human being. It's not more effective. It's less effective. It's more destructive. Um, however, if you're dealing with one of those physicians or administrators or, whoever, uh, or hell, even someone in the corporate world that's not even in medicine. You're still going to have to deal with those, those dickheads, and you've got to be able to navigate that and recognize that's them, not you, 
and yet you still have to be able to work with them and in some ways, uh, let's say manipulate them. I know that has sort of a bad connotation, but that's ultimately what you want to do. You want to, you want to create a system where you can control the outcome and sometimes that's playing to their ego. And that's okay. Who really cares if you get the outcome that you want? Um, but that's something that I do hope that we're able to communicate in this podcast is you know, effective forms of communication, uh, effective ways to build a solid team because we all, all four of us know when we're with the team in the ED or the ICU that is the, the A team. We all know when it's not the A team and the difference is night and day. Um, and in doing that, you know, we want to share leadership principles. We want to share, this is, these are some success stories we've had in building a solid team and, and leading that team and helping others build a solid team and lead that team. We're hoping we can provide that as well. I also wanted to take just a second for any of those out there who don't really know the difference between a physician and a mid-level provider. So a physician would be uh, an MD or a medical doctor uh, or a DO or a doctor of osteopathic medicine. And the mid-level providers would be um, uh, physician's assistants or PAs or NPs or nurse practitioners or even uh, CRNAs would be uh, credentialed certified nurse anesthetist, mm -hmm. uh, which we don't work a whole lot with, or I, I, I haven't in the emergency department, but I know they work a whole lot with anesthesia, uh, so they're in the operating room a lot. But they do a lot of critical care. I know where I trained, uh, they did a bulk of the work um, at the trauma hospital where I trained. And so actually, I credit them with a whole lot of the skills I developed in intubating and crash central lines and things like that. They were incredibly awesome. And the only reason I bring that up is that the work that we do is really the same. There are a few things at each hospital that will limit the practice of a mid-level or a physician in, pay, in based on what you're credentialed to do. Usually that's based on hospital policy and or experience. So if I've done X number of intubations, I'm gonna be credentialed to do it. If I haven't, I'm not, whether I'm a doctor or a mid-level provider. Um, but the work that we do is largely the same and we work closely together, we collaborate with each other. There is a traditional hierarchy uh, where the physician runs the emergency department of the ICU and the mid-level, I guess you would say, works underneath. But the best scenarios I've seen is when they work hand in hand and the physician listens to the mid-level, especially the mid-level, like the one sitting next to me who has 20 more years experience than I do and has seen shit I've not seen and has also seen it on the battlefield. <laughs> So if my dumbass isn't listening to what he has to say, then that's just it, I'm a dumbass. And so I want to encourage all of the physicians out there to learn from your mid-level providers. And yeah, you need to up your game if they're constantly schooling you, which means I need to up my game. But at the same time, um, I wanted to get, have a chance to just share that with the, anybody out there listening, that we do, the work that we do is the same. The patients that we see are the same. Any differences that you may see are largely dictated by the hospital. Uh, the various hospitals that we work in and administration and stuff. Um, and, um, you know, whether you're a physician or a middle provider, you're going to be new at some point in your career. So well, take every opportunity you can to learn from anybody with experience. Don't be too proud to learn from someone who's had other experience, regardless of where they, where, where they are, uh, in the hospital system. Yeah. And in saying that, I mean, there's, I mean, you know, Having Mandy and Wendy here, I can tell you already that I've asked both y'all questions. And, you know, even though John gave me kudos, I can tell you right now that 
it's not below me to go and say, oh, you know what, I know everything. I've, I've asked you guys for advice when it comes to patient management and whatever. So, um, yeah, and even for NPs that have been doing it for a long time or PAs, I would say the same thing. Is, you know, don't be scared to ask questions. Um, you don't know everything. I don't know everything. As probably the most least experienced here, um, I will agree with that and say, ask anybody anything that you're comfortable with. Um, for myself, because I'm the hospitalist slash nocturnist, most of the time I'm on by myself, alone. Um, my attending is available for a call, but um, sometimes when these situations are critical, you've got to ask you know, your resources, whoever's around. And so I would say, um, make that a practice. Learn everything you can. Um, make sure it's trusted resources though. But um, I would say, yeah, don't be afraid to ask questions because that's the only way you're gonna learn. And medicine is an evolving practice. You know, stuff that was standard five years ago is no longer standard anymore. So everyone's constantly learning. It's constantly evolving. So yeah, ask questions, definitely. Well, and, and to Craig's point, I might have, you know, use Craig as, as an example, but I ask Wendy and Mandy just as many questions all the time. And Mandy may think she is one of the least experienced, but she's an incredibly experienced trauma nurse that she's been, how many years were you a trauma nurse before you were a nurse practitioner? Uh, probably about 12. So 12 yeah. years of trauma nurse experience. So again, if I'm not pulling from that experience, I'm being a dumbass. Yeah. Like that's a perspective that she spent 12 years at a level one trauma facility. I know between <laughs> medical school and residency, I spent uh, eight years in and out of a level one, but not constantly there, you know? So there's going to be things that we all need to be yeah. willing to learn and listen. And well, I mean, and I pick your brain. I mean, I don't, I don't have, you know. I'm not prideful. I don't sit there and go like, oh my God. Me either. Mm -hmm. well, and I think that's the, we all learned it's this the early on. Part is that the people who don't ask the questions are the people who kill people. Yep. And the people who do ask will go on to do really good work and become really good clinicians because those are the people you want to work with. Those are the people you're not worried about because you know they'll come to you and you're outside of their comfort zone. Whether it be a tech or a nurse or another MP or PA or even the new physicians that have just rolled out of residency, it's their first attending job and they're not too afraid to be like, hey, I've never seen this, what do you think? And I can either be like, I have no clue, let's ask somebody else, <laughs> um, which I'm not afraid to say, or yeah, yeah, I've seen that before, let's roll with it this way, this is what's been successful for me in the past. Um, or let's look it up to date. Let's use our resources that are out there and our evidence base in the most um, appropriate to use. I mean, I have it on my phone. I use it all the time. So. And I, I really want to echo what Craig just said about staying humble because I really believe in that. And I'm talking to me just as anybody else because, you know, I, I, I can let my ego get in the way and that's never a good thing. And I want to make sure that we are encouraging everyone to stay humble and learn from every opportunity that we can. And, you know, I remember the first time, so I was fortunate enough to re do residency at a program that allowed me to moonlight in the second half of my senior year of residency, which was great not only to make a few extra bucks, but also to get some experience. And I remember my first shift 
doing that. And again, I was a, a resident, but technically I was an attending at a different non-teaching hospital. And I didn't literally throw up, but I felt nauseated going into work. <laughs> and I sat down and kind of went through the motions. I was like, okay, I trust my training, trust my training, I'm doing this and this. And I had a guy come in with some neck mass that I was just like, what do I do? CT'd it, it looked like it was an abscess, kind of deep. And I was like, I'm not touching that. I don't know what to do with it. And I, I picked up my cell phone. <laughs> Not the hospital, I picked up my cell phone and called one of my favorite attendees like, hey, uh, w what should I do with this? And I sent him a picture of the CT. He's like, no worries, man, just, just transfer it over here. We'll get the ENT guys to see it. <laughs> but just knowing that I had that little ability to call someone with more experience calmed me significantly because I was worried that this guy was gonna have a fluid oh, yeah. airway and I was gonna have to crike him and I had all kinds of just Anxiety so every nightmare it, scenario you could have created in your head, you're like, this will happen. I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> I'm going to lose my ability to practice medicine on my first moonlight shift <laughs> as a resident. <laughs> yes. And it's like you're going down that path, <laughs> and then you leave, and you just take the sigh of, oh my gosh, I survived. Yeah. And it's still kind of like that. Sometimes I show up to work nauseated, nervous about the day, and some days it's great, and some days it's terrible. And you leave, and you're like, well, I survived. And I think the mentality is, what did I learn? Yeah. I mean, like, that's it. You like, you, you win or you learn. And that's what I hope we can, you know, communicate with y'all. I hope I can teach that to my kids. It's like, look, you win or you learn. You win or you learn. And that mentality and keeps you humble. Uh, it keeps you wanting to grow, keep you motivated. Yeah. And, it, you know, in saying that, uh, the military, you know, going in, to some of the strategic planning that I got to participate in, we had a big lessons learned, you know, lessons learned on this operation and this operation. And so these are like this, this vault of, of missions that how to do it right and what went right and what went wrong. And you get to go through it. And sometimes the wrong stuff that they did really wasn't wrong. It was just the way things happen you know you go on this mission and somebody falls off the plane and breaks their neck I mean, that's that's not expected so and it's same thing in emergency medicine like you're sitting there and it's like you're at work and next thing you know it's like what do I do with this you know and then like this case scenario and well I wasn't expecting this <laughs> This was not in the textbook. Yeah. <laughs> I never read this anywhere. This wasn't supposed to happen, How you know. Happen? <laughs> yeah, and you and you know, you see something like for me, you know, I mean I'll see something every once in a while and I'm just like, holy crap, where did this come from? I've never seen anything like this. So yeah. I think lessons learned are just a, a big part of of all of this, you know, as you evolve throughout medicine and even in the military, you're just like, oh, I know what works and I know what doesn't work. But at the same time, you know, you throw that one scenario where it's like, oh, you know, you're doing this thing. You know, you're say for instance, you're going through an intubation and guess what? The patient at the last second, you know, decides to have this massive bleed out of his mouth. And now you're stuck at the head of the bed. You're covered in blood. Do you, do you clean yourself off? Do you know, or do you just go through? Do you suction, you know, do you bag? All these little different things that just start to develop. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and 
you know, there's a lot of overlap between what we do in acute care, critical care, and emergency medicine, and the stories I hear from my friends in the military and the challenges that they face. I wasn't in the military, and so most of what I can offer is what I've read or what I've heard, and you know, Craig can speak to that more candidly, but so much of what even he has told me, there's so much overlap into, hey, we had this plan, and oh, by the way, uh, it didn't work. We went to plan B, oh, by the way, plan B didn't work. We went to plan C, thank God we had a plan C. Yeah. It's kind of like that in the ER. It's like, oh, hey, I didn't expect this guy to be bleeding in his mouth, and oh, shit, now we're having this, you know, and so it just one thing after another, and you've got to have a plan, but you gotta hold those plans lightly and be flexible and be adaptable and use your brain. Yeah, you wanna have training and whatever, but you gotta use your brain. And that's one of the things that- You gotta remain calm. You gotta stay calm. That's probably the biggest part. Take a I deep think. breath. Yeah. yeah, remain calm and- I don't know, like, I remember seeing Wendy put in a line and do an intubation and it's like, just, just breathe, just yep. relax, yep. just- my hands your may shake the whole time through it, but I don't just, panic. Just it's okay. You know, it's just... Uh, yeah. Well, and like, again, one of my favorite attendants he used to tell me, uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And his whole idea was don't rush this. You know, yeah. you can do this. You're not, you know, don't make yourself in a hurry. Uh, yes, you don't want to dilly-dally, um, but you want to be, you want to be smooth with it. Um, and that's, that's where staying calm. And that... There was actually a book that they had us read in residency uh, that was, the book was entitled, and I'd have to look at it, it was entitled On Combat, and I forget the name of the author because I don't have it with me, but it was, it was amazing that, first of all, the emergency docs wanted me to read the book, but they wanted me to read the book not because of any kind of tactical lessons, but because of the mental training that they did to deal with life and death situations. And it was amazing, whether it was the breathing exercises or mentally thinking through the mission before they go on it, just like we would try to mentally think through running a code or mentally think through doing a central line or an intubation or a chest tube or a crike or whatever the situation may be. And just using that as not only practice tools, but tools to stay calm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll find that book and we'll talk about that book one time because that book was really interesting, both from a military and it would be applicable to firefighters and police, uh, first responders, you know, I mean, these are the people that are going into, into homes and who knows what they're seeing. You know, sometimes these guys show up and they can't even go into a scene until the cops have shown up and cleared it and made it safe. You know, so it's just a, it's a different world that they're living in, but their, their ability to stay calm keeps them and us uh, with the ability to think clearly and, and calmly. So any other bounce back stories? Well, I was going to go back to the very first case that's in this book. And the reason is this goes towards, I guess, some of the other challenging things that we'll ultimately talk about on this podcast. So the very first case in this book, again, it's from, I think, 2006, so there may be new additions out. But this particular case is a bounce back of an 18-year-old who came in with a left hand pain. And he presented saying that it happened a, quote, couple days ago. Um, he was messing around with his friends and he accidentally hit his hand on a piece of loose brick. The doc evaluated it, looked at it, got an x-ray, it was negative for any kind of a fracture, um, cleaned it out, sewed it up, uh, gave him some antibiotics in the hospital, and then sent him home with a script of antibiotics. 
Five days later, this guy comes back to the same ED. He ha now has a fever and is tachycardic, and he's got pus that's coming out of this wound, and it looks worse. They get uh, antibiotics started, and after a more detailed uh, history, the patient finally admits that he was in a fight, he hit someone in the mouth, he did not fill the prescriptions that the previous provider uh, offered him, um, and now he had to go to the operating room to have this, quote, fight bite, end quote, mm -hmm. cleaned up. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I, I don't, you know, the outcome in this particular case was okay. The patient didn't lose his hand or anything horrific like that. The frustrating thing to me is that the first provider is held to a standard based on a patient that does not tell the truth and does not fill a prescription that was, he was advised to do. And those are the expectations that we have in the emergency department with patients that we don't know. And oh, by the way, other providers who say see patients in the clinic can fire these patients. Mm -hmm. We can't from the emergency department. We're held to, to the uh, status that we have to see everyone, whether they lie to us or spit at us, just like they said you know, earlier, uh, or don't do what we've asked them to do in terms of filling their prescriptions. And I guess my question is at what point do we as healthcare providers start requiring our patients to have some personal responsibility? Because we can only help patients as much as they want to be helped. And we see this all too often. Patients who don't take their blood pressure medicines, patients who don't take their insulin, and then they end up in DKA, which is diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a real emergency and can kill you. And yet we're fighting this battle constantly with patients who don't take care of themselves. Is it a majority of the patients? Well, that depends on where you work. Mm -hmm. But in a case like this, which is the lead case in a book on bounce backs, starting off with a patient who is untruthful about what happened, and furthermore, non-compliant in getting the medications that we've said he needs because we're worried this might be infected. I don't even know how to help that, you know? Like, it's just unbelievable that that's what we have to deal with, and yet it is. I guess because of my experience and my, I work with patient populations for the most part that are not gonna be compliant. Um, everywhere that I've worked, they just, limited resources, they're not gonna be as compliant as other populations that have higher socioeconomics and higher education levels and all these things, for the most part, most of these populations that I've worked with are going to be good. I have just developed this innate, like, blatant, blunt conversation point. Be like, okay, dude, really? Bro, is this really what happened? <laughs> because this is what it looks like to me. And I don't care. I'm not the police. I just need to know so I can treat you <laughs> the best way possible. And... That is where I find the most success, honestly. Like, yeah. it's just breaking it down for people, being real, being honest, putting myself on their level, and I get the most success from people, and they genuinely, normally open up. Not 100%, no, no. but they open, and they're like, yeah, I punched a student in the face, I got drunk, I was on cocaine, whatever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I and get that's, more. Yeah, and that's the, that's the funny thing, too. I can't tell you the number of times I tell patients, look, 
I only care in so much as it is that I can help you. Beyond that, I don't care, and I'm not the cause. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's you, true. You know, and it's like, I guess because at, at some level, patients see us as some sort of an authority figure, and I try to break that barrier down and say, look, I really, I don't care. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to take care of you. And I and think so, we've always kind of yeah. been taught, like, you have to maintain this level of professionalism. But depending on the patient population that you treat, they don't see it as you being professional. They see it as like you being in charge or yeah, you're like authoritative. Sort of, yeah, or and so it's my favorite. Yeah. yeah, so I've <laughs> dealt like with so patients sweetie. where you go in there and you, of course, try to maintain your professionalism and you know speak kind of candidly with them. But at some point, for whatever reason, it's just not getting through, and so. I have had to go to, you know, ghetto thug Mandy and just talk to them in their language (laughs) so they understand it. Or, you know, speak a different language but say it in the slang terms that they get. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, the light bulb goes off, they get it, they're a little bit more open and receptive to what you have to say. And they completely understand what you're saying and are agreeable to what you're saying yeah. versus maintaining this kind of, you know, level of professionalism that they taught you in school that you should always right, maintain. Right. The white coat aura. Exactly. Yeah. Just exactly. Pristine. Well, and, and I, I, I'm above you. I tend to forget how I thought as an 18 year old, but like. If I came into the ER as an 18 year old after a fight, especially if I'd have lost the fight, I'd be like, oh, I was uh, just playing around. Like, I don't want to admit I just got my ass beat. I like, fell. I fell, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like your face looks like you fell several times. <laughs> Down an entire fight. <laughs> I'll a couple of bats. <laughs> Without arms. <laughs> so, like, I, I, I slid down the mountain. What know. mountain? The one down the road. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's, it's hard to remember that stuff. And yet, like, I guess part of it, too, is because. Some sometimes where we work is we see so much of it that we're just like God. Can't somebody just tell the truth? Yeah. And so it's not like it's just this case is pretty common. It might not be a fight fight. It might be something else. But it's a very common scenario for patients to not tell us the truth, whether that's intentional or because they just don't know. Um. And and we ch- we deal with both. What seventy percent of our day every day mm-hmm. every time on shift. Mm-hmm. I think the. The one thing for some of the listeners is probably thinking, you know, that all we see is like these horrific cases. But the reality is there's a lot of success every day in the emergency room. There's a lot of success in the hospital. Um, and even though there might be animosity between, you know, clinical staff from, you know, nurses, doctors, whoever. Uh, at the same time, there are patients that do show up. They do tell the truth. And even no matter what we do there's not going to be a good outcome because that's just the way life is. A lot of people want equality in life and this fairness in life, but that life isn't fair to people. Uh, and, and then the other side, there is the person that comes in like this kid or somebody else who's shooting up heroin, gets a shooter's abscess, tells us he doesn't shoot up, and you know, he just developed this thing, but you know, us as clinical experts can sit there and go, oh, this is exactly what this is. They decide they're going to go home they, no matter what, and um, they do fine. That's yeah, just the way it just, is. That's just the way it is. Kind of, yeah, how the cookie crumbles. Well, and, and one of the things that this, this uh, particular case in the book points out is, like, well, what if this individual couldn't have afforded the antibiotics? 
and, and I get that that's an issue. And actually, we have you know case management at our hospital. We have these little cards that we hand out that can give patients discounts. And we try, to the best of our ability, yeah. to know which antibiotics and which medicines are cheaper. But it's changing all the time. It's really hard. And again, we can do the very best that we can. But at some point, patients have to have responsibility for themselves. We can't hold your hands and coddle you forever. Mm-hmm. We can do the best that we can, but that's all we can do. And, you know, we, we, we do have the challenge of you can do everything right and it still goes bad. And you can do everything right and it goes perfect. Mm-hmm. And it just, life isn't fair. Um, so our clinical takeaways from bounce backs, our clinical shots, as we're going to call them, pearls. Yeah. But we like shots because we all like alcohol. Um, <laughs> in fact, some of us are drinking. You can't see it, but some of us are drinking right now. Um, what would be your takeaway from bounce backs individually, each of you? I would say that my takeaway would be do the very best that you can to quickly develop a rapport and connection with a patient. Whether that means that you stop talking like a professional and start talking like a human being so you connect with them so that they tell you a more detailed and accurate history, or whether it means you connect with them so that when you have to come back and tell them bad news, be it you have cancer or your mother just passed away, they know you give a shit. Mm -hmm. And that's what ultimately I think is gonna be the difference between ending up as an example in bounce backs and not is doing everything you can to connect with the patient and say, listen, we did everything that we humanly could within the realm of our expertise and the technological, medical, pharmacological capabilities that we had. And we really care. And I'm really sorry that it happened this way, or I'm really happy that it happened this way. Mm-hmm. But either way, if we, if we can connect with those patients, I think it's, and it's not gonna happen all the time. Um, but the more that we can do that, I think the more success we'll have treating patients. I wonder what my bounce backs are. That's the one I'm thinking. Let me tell you. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm wondering what my bounce episode, episode, episode two. Episode two. Right? Yeah. Episode 149. <laughs> <laughs> we gather all the data. Um, I, I think personally probably the... Yeah, I'd agree with John, but at the same time, I also think that there's there's a part of me that just knows there are going to be there's going to be fire no matter what you do, uh, and, and it's it's just a reality of of you know the patient has a allergic reaction to the medicine, the the, the medicine doesn't work, uh, and that's with the patient that is compliant. So you know you sit there and you're like. Oh, we'll put you on Teflex, or we'll put you on Bactrim, or we'll put you on whatever, and then the next thing you know, they're having allergic reaction to it. The patient comes back, and they're sicker, but it's a different scenario. Uh, then you have the other scenario where they do fine. Uh, then you have the scenario where, once again, it's just non-compliance, and you know you're you're going to be stuck in that that realm, and it's just a matter of for me at that point, uh, not judging. John or Wendy or Mandy for discharging this patient and they have a bad outcome because of the medication or the patient's non-compliance. It's just a matter of, hey, this is what the deal is and, and just kind of rolling forward with it. Yeah, I think mine um, would be keeping a fresh eye, like really just staying open to this person coming back and really listening to what they have to say. 
and not just getting frustrated like god this guy just was here because it's so easy to do when you have 50 other patients to see is to get frustrated and say oh he was just here why is he back didn't he listen so just keeping a fresh eye that way you can listen to what they say you can hopefully fix what's going on and move forward in a positive manner instead of just being negative and then maybe missing something that could be catastrophic for the patient and for you legally and financially and clinically. I would say, I think for me as the hospitalist, probably like listening and sitting there and trying to tease out the story from the patient. Because there's lots of times where I've admitted patients that end up bouncing back to the ER for like failed outpatient treatment or whatever. Um, And I know it's harder in the ER to do this because of all the metrics that have to be met. But once I admit them, I try to sit there and like really get to the bottom of the story. Um, Sometimes they get a little offended, like I'm questioning them um, and not believing what they're telling me. But I sit there and say, no, I, I really need to understand like the timeline of what happened from either your initial injury or your initial symptom. So I will get them to tell me the entire story, um, repeat it back to them to make sure that that's what I'm understanding. And then all of a sudden, sometimes they come out with, oh, I forgot this happened. Or, oh man, by the way, I forgot to tell the other doc this out of the other. So a lot of times that ends up being like the crucial piece is to why whatever didn't work or why they're presenting again. Um, And like I said, sometimes the patients get kind of annoyed, but at the end they're like, oh, okay, well that makes sense now, you know, whatever. But I think for me trying to tease out all of that bit of information from them, as irritating as they may be by it, um, is really helpful for me because then it helps me to understand the whole timeline of what happened, you know, and why they failed whatever outpatient treatment. Well, we want to thank all of you for joining us and listening uh, and being a part of Ops Medical Group's first podcast, But Did You Die? will be the title of our podcast uh, with Craig, Wendy, Mandy, and me, John. Uh, And we look forward to doing this again. And thank you very much. We out. out.